Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crimopedia. I'm your host, Allison, and today I have a bit of a different case for you. If you're anything like me, then the proposed statistics regarding wrongful convictions in North America probably took you completely by shock the first time you saw them. In the United States, as of February 2020, a total of over 2,500 people have been declared wrongfully convicted in the National Registry of Exonerations. Unfortunately, not all of these people were exonerated in time to see freedom before their passing. This number, although still quite large, actually pales in comparison to the projected numbers of wrongfully convicted individuals serving time in both Canadian and American prisons. According to Innocence Canada, the number one reason why people are wrongfully placed behind bars is due to false eyewitness testimony. What many people don't realize is that your memory doesn't actually work like a video camera. Memories can be influenced or changed, and they are highly susceptible to suggestion. According to a study conducted in the 70s by Elizabeth Loftus, who is a leading expert on eyewitness memory, she proved that just by changing one single word in a sentence could influence witnesses of a car accident to report very different accounts of the same variable in the study. In the study, a group of witnesses were exposed to a mock car crash scene. The entire group was asked the same question, how fast were the cars going when they crashed? But some of the group members were asked how fast the cars were going when they bumped into each other or hit each other. And other members of the group were asked how fast the cars were going when they smashed into each other. Kind of seems like a trivial difference, right? But it turns out that the individuals who were asked how fast the cars were going in the mock car crash scene when they smashed or crashed into each other reported much higher perceived speeds of the accident than the individuals who witnessed the same car crash but were questioned ever so slightly differently. It turns out that high stress situations can also heavily influence your memory recall. The presence of a weapon in a high-stress situation can negate all memory encoding peripheral details of an event such as, you know, you may remember every minute detail of a knife or a gun, but you may not actually encode any details about the person's face who was holding the knife or the gun. The human memory, like many aspects of the brain, is like Play-Doh, malleable and susceptible to change. This is all normal, and it doesn't make someone any less qualified to tell stories from their own memory or anything like that. But when police are trying to investigate a suspect in relation to a crime, you can imagine that the heavily impressionable human memory may create some foreseeable issues. With all that out of our way, let's take a look at the case of Ronald Cotton. On the night of July 28, 1984, Jennifer Thompson, a 22-year-old college student, was turning in for the night in her off-campus apartment in Burlington, North Carolina. She had gone out with her boyfriend that night to a restaurant, but Jennifer wasn't feeling well, and so she went home and decided to spend the night by herself. That night, as she slept, at around 3 o'clock in the morning, somebody smashed the light bulb that illuminated Jennifer's back door to her home and cut her home telephone wire outside. Then, 
the person broke in to Jennifer's home. When Jennifer awoke from the noise and called out, hello, who's there? She was attacked. The intruder pinned her arms to the side of her head and put a knife to her throat, threatening that if she screamed, there would be serious consequences. Jennifer was petrified. She offered up all of her belongings, her wallet, credit cards, her car, but the intruder only came to her house for one reason, and that was made evident when he said back to her, I don't want your money. The intruder began to sexually assault Jennifer that night in what would be the most horrific and unforgettable 30 minutes that would forever change Jennifer's life. But Jennifer vowed to stay alert during the attack and study the intruder in incredible detail. As he was attacking her, she examined his face as much as she could in her dimly lit bedroom. She looked at his body, if he had tattoos, his hair. She wanted to ensure that if she survived this, that she would be able to put this guy away for the rest of his life. Jennifer knew that this guy had been drinking because she could smell it on his breath. And so she thought to herself that it wouldn't be too hard to outsmart him. She began to ask him personal questions in an attempt to gather more identifying information about her attacker, but in the same way that she wanted to know more about him, he had his own motivations for wanting to know more about her. He actually went through her wallet and all of her belongings, and he ended up taking some of her personal effects. In an attempt to lure him outside, Jennifer for a moment pretended like she would feel much more at ease with their sexual encounter if the intruder abandoned his weapons. Thus, she would let her guard down and the encounter would be more enjoyable for the both of them. She told him that if he went outside and put the knife on her car, likely so she would be able to hear the metal on metal, that she would feel better about this. She did this in an attempt to get him outside for long enough so that she could lock him out of the house and have time to call the police but the attacker put Jennifer in her own bathroom and shut the door. And the intruder actually didn't exit her house to put the knife down. He just left it kind of outside her door. And so it was time for plan B. Jennifer would get her moment when the intruder came back to her and made a remark about how thirsty he was. She offered to get him a drink. And so she went into her kitchen and turned all the lights on, hoping that the bright light would keep him away from approaching her out of fear of revealing his face. And that worked. As she clanked around with the ice cubes and the glassware and ran water from the tap, she noticed that the back door that led into her kitchen was still open. And so she made a run for it. Thankfully, Jennifer was able to escape successfully, landing on the porch of a neighbor and collapsing. When the intruder noticed that she was gone, he fled. And later that same night, he actually broke into the home of another unsuspecting victim and sexually assaulted her as well. It turns out at the time of the news release for these crimes in 1984, police reported that this attacker actually attempted to burglarize another home before he made it to Jennifer's that night. This attempt was foiled after he was frightened away at the sight of the woman living in the home he was trying to break into being awake. Later on that night, officers were able to chase this guy on foot for some time actually, but they ended up losing him when he fled into a wooded area of Burlington. 
Along with Jennifer's sense of privacy and security, this intruder stole money and various items and left Jennifer unknowingly about to embark on a journey with the justice system in North Carolina that would last over a decade. Detective Mike Galden of the Burlington Police Department actually met with Jennifer at the hospital she was taken to where she had her rape kit completed. He worked with Jennifer to create a composite sketch and recreate the face that Jennifer studied so meticulously that night. She picked out the eyebrows and a sort of raised expression. She remembered the intruder had a thin mustache and was a black man of light complexion, which was also described in the news release with the composite, as well as his height being around six feet tall, him weighing about 170 to 175 pounds, and him being approximately somewhere in his early 20s. With the incredibly detailed composite sketch and description of this guy being put out in press releases, it didn't take long for the tips to start rolling in. The police received a tip about a young man named Ronald Cotton, who was employed at a restaurant located in close proximity to both of the sexual assaults that occurred that night on July 28th. And Ronald actually had a criminal history, albeit most of it while being a teenager, but he had a record of breaking and entering and sexual assault. Ronald caught wind that the police were interested in speaking with him. His mother's boyfriend at the time clued him into this, although I couldn't find any information as to how this boyfriend figured it out, but Ron insisted that he had nothing to do with the sexual assaults. And so on August 1st of 1984, he voluntarily went down to the police station to clear his name and offer an alibi, which was that he left a motel late at night with his girlfriend, too late to have committed these crimes. It turns out, however, that Ronald Cotton, for whatever reason, got his dates confused and willingly offered up an incredibly detailed alibi to police that was false and easily proven to be so. Ronald Cotton's family actually said he was asleep on the couch at the time of the attacks. Because of this, there were differing accounts from him and his family, and the police couldn't believe his story for what it was, and so he was remanded in custody on the suspicion of committing these rapes. And understandably so. His alibi was just proven to be a lie. He lived in close proximity to the crimes that night. If you see a picture of Ronald Cotton, he sort of fits the composite description. And he had a criminal history of pretty relevant offenses that were similar to the ones committed on July 28th in 1984. A few days later, on August 2nd, both Jennifer and the other victim of a sexual assault that night, who we can refer to as Jane Doe for the rest of this story, came into the police station to view a simultaneous photo lineup. Jennifer picked out Ronald Cotton out of six potential choices. Like I said, Ronald looked a lot like the composite sketch Jennifer and Detective Galton put together. He has the raised eyebrows, the light skin complexion, the same lip shape as the sketch. He fit the description pretty well for all intents and purposes. However, Jane Doe identified somebody else in the lineup, someone who was not a suspect in the sexual assaults because, in fact, Ronald Cotton was the only suspect at that time of all the other men present in the lineup. They were foils, or people who are known to police to have not committed the crime but still fit the relative suspect description. They may be employees at the police station, other officers, or people that police can for sure verify their whereabouts to use them as controls in photo lineups. 
and that's who Jane Doe picked. She picked one of the foils. On August 8th, both victims came back again to the Burlington police station to view an in-person simultaneous lineup this time, consisting of seven men. Again, Jane Doe picked a foil, but Jennifer Thompson once again selected Ronald Cotton. Detective Galden turned to Jennifer and said, that's the same guy you picked in the photo lineup. And Jennifer stated later in an interview that she felt in that moment she had done her job, she felt confident in herself that she made the right choice. She had diligently studied her attacker's face and she felt confident that she put her experience to good use. What happened to her wouldn't be in vain and she was going to be the person who got this dangerous criminal off the streets. During the trial overseen by Judge Anthony Brannon, the prosecution presented Jennifer's eyewitness testimony, which was incredibly damning. Back in the 80s, I don't think there was anything you could present in court that was more damning than eyewitness testimony. Jennifer Thompson pointed to Ronald Cotton in the courtroom and said to the jury that despite his not guilty plea, that he was the man who raped her. As well, police found a piece of foam material that apparently had come off of a piece of one of Ronald Cotton's shoes during the attack and was located on Jennifer's bedroom floor. The other victim, Jane Doe, also testified that her rapist used a flashlight. And a flashlight was found in Ronald Cotton's home, albeit of a completely different color than what the eyewitness recalled, but Ronald Cotton also had a knife on his person that Jennifer claimed was the one he used during the attack. Court-appointed defense attorney for Ronald Cotton, Philip Mosley, later said in an interview that Ronald's alibi was not credible, which made Jennifer's testimony even stronger, compounded by her confidence and self-assured demeanor. He said that the jury, in his opinion, must have thought that Ronald Cotton's family was trying to cover up for him by offering up a different alibi than his own, unknowingly outing his alibi as a lie. With all of that, after only 40 minutes of deliberation, the jury came back with a guilty verdict on the charges of burglary, rape, and first-degree sex offense against Ronald Cotton. He was sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years on January 17th of 1985. After some time being incarcerated, Ronald began working in the prison kitchen and singing in the choir. By all accounts, he was trying to embrace the new normal he was handed, despite his perpetual insistence of innocence. Ronald actually wrote countless letters to his attorneys to advocate for himself in an attempt to obtain a new trial, but it was fruitless. That was until one day when Ron noticed a new inmate being brought in. He got a sense of familiarity from this guy and he couldn't shake it, so he straight up asked this new inmate where he was from. The inmate said he was from Burlington, North Carolina, to which Ronald said, yeah, me too. And then it dawned on him. The inmate standing before him looked strikingly more like the composite sketch that Jennifer Thompson and Detective Galden had created during their investigation than Ronald did. But when asked, this inmate scoffed at Ronald, saying he didn't commit that crime, and walked away. This guy's name was Bobby Poole. He was in prison on charges of sexual assault and was eventually working alongside Ronald Cotton in the prison kitchen. Ronald later spoke about how the other kitchen staff would call Ronald by Poole's last name, mistaking them for one another because they looked so much alike. 
Sometime after, Ronald was actually told by another fellow inmate that Bobby Poole had admitted to them to raping Jennifer Thompson and Jane Doe that night of July 28, 1984, and it even laughed about how Ronald Cotton was serving some of his sentence for him. Philip Mosley became aware of this and obviously knew he had to advocate for his client, and so after some blood sample analysis was run, it turned out that Bobby Poole's blood type was the same as the sample left at the scene of Jane Doe's sexual assault. This sample did not match Ronald Cotton's blood type. And just like that, a new trial was commissioned with the defense using Bobby Poole to create reasonable doubt surrounding Ronald Cotton's guilt. Ronald had been pleading his innocence since before he was even arrested when he voluntarily went down to the police station to clear his name, and this was his chance to prove it. Interestingly, however, during this second trial, none of the physical evidence against Bobby Poole, like the blood sample, or even his jailhouse confessions could be used in this trial to exonerate Ronald Cotton. But the defense still tried, and when Jennifer got up on the stand to testify again with Bobby Poole present in the courtroom, she said with resiliency and nerve that Ronald Cotton was still the man. She said that looking at Bobby Poole did nothing for her, and that it was Ronald Cotton's face she saw in her bedroom that night of the assault. Consequently, Ronald was sentenced to two full life sentences on August 3rd of 1987 before Justice Marsh McClelland. While in prison, Ronald, like everybody else in North America, was captivated by the trial proceedings of O.J. Simpson. Ronald became intrigued at this idea of DNA evidence, a way to verify as a matter of fact who was present at the scene of a crime. During this time, law professor at the University of North Carolina, Richard Rosen, stumbled upon Cotton's case and agreed to look into it some more. Ron pleaded with him to try and petition for DNA testing, but Rosen said that more than likely there wasn't going to be any DNA evidence left over. At this point, it had been a couple years since the rapes were committed and Ronald was found guilty for the first time. But this was untrue, and somewhere tucked away in the evidence files was a single viable piece of DNA from a fragment of a sperm cell collected during one of the rape kits completed during the initial investigation. Rosen warned Cotton, if you did this and the DNA proves it, you're done with appeals. It doesn't matter how you feel anymore after this. If it comes back a match, you will spend the rest of your life behind bars. But Ronald was confident. He had been pleading his innocence for years and wasn't about to slow down now, especially after what happened at the last trial. This was actually his chance at proving it, finally. And so, Richard Rosen filed a motion to have Ronald Cotton's DNA tested against the sperm cell fragment. When the results came back, Ronald Cotton's DNA did not match the fragment from the rape kit. However, it did match one Bobby Poole. Detective Galden went to Jennifer Thompson's home an entire 11 years later, but she had moved away from Burlington and was living in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and he informed her that she was in fact wrong. Ronald Cotton was not the man who savagely attacked her in 1984. 
Within a few short days, Ron was back in the courtroom to be formally exonerated. By the time he was released, Ronald Cotton had served just over a decade in prison for a crime that he did not commit. Jennifer was understandably devastated. She had made it her mission that night to study the features of her attacker the best she could. Detective Galden said that she unfortunately blamed herself, and so she asked him if he could arrange for her to meet with Ronald Cotton at a church in Burlington. She needed some closure. She said later on that she was very nervous for this meeting, understandably so, and that when Ron walked into the church, she found it impossible to even stand. For the last 11 years, she was convinced that this man had broken into her home and savagely raped her. She said to him, Ron, if I spend every second of every minute of every hour for the rest of my life telling you how sorry I am, it wouldn't come close to how my heart feels. And with that, Ronald forgave her. He took her by the hands and said, Jennifer, I don't want you to keep looking over your shoulder. I want you to move on and be happy in life. Since 1984, Jennifer had actually married and had children, but she says that it was in that moment when Ronald took her hands and forgave her with humility and sincerity that she began to heal instantly. She says in that moment, she knew what mercy and grace was all about. According to Jennifer, she said that when you're the one picking out faces in a photo lineup that it's like the SATs. You're narrowing down your choices like a multiple choice question, assuming that the perpetrator is in the lineup, despite police being mandated by law in North America, at least now, to disclose that the suspect may or may not actually be present. As we know, that Bobby Poole's photograph was not present in the initial simultaneous lineup, nor was he an option during the physical lineup. Today, in 2021, we know a lot more about the human memory than we did back in the 80s. Professor Gary Wells from Iowa State University says that witnesses during a photo lineup when the perpetrator is not present are simply more likely to pick the person who just looks the most familiar. As well, when you present a lineup of potential suspects to a witness all at the same time instead of sequentially, just as what was done in Jennifer Thompson's case, the witness will unconsciously be comparing each face to the other faces instead of comparing each face to their own memory. Turns out Bobby Poole and Ronald Cotton do have some similar features. Their eyebrow shapes, they're both black men with lighter complexions, again they have similar lip shapes. Wells stated that although Jennifer's intention was to be absolutely sure in her judgments during the lineups, which is why she analyzed them over an extended period of approximately five minutes, meticulously inspecting each detail, that what police should have clued in on is that that duration of time it took her to choose was indicative of her memory actually being uncertain. Gary Wells says that recognition memory and making absolute judgments like that should only take 10 to 15 seconds at best, and if someone's taking longer than that, then they are likely subconsciously using other memory devices than simply their recognition memory. This is when he points out that a better mechanism for a photo lineup that may have spared Ronald Cotton would have been a sequential one. One where Jennifer would have seen the suspects one at a time, forced to compare each face only to her own memory. As well, 
Unknowingly, Detective Galden reinforced Jennifer's erroneous ID of Ronald after she picked him again in the in-person lineup. He affirmed her choice by telling her that she picked the same person twice. It seems innocent enough, but this positive reinforcement is likely the reason why Jennifer was able to give such convincing testimony during the trials and the same reason as to why when she did see Bobby Poole in court that she felt absolutely nothing towards him and did not recognize him despite him actually being the one who'd broken into her home and attacked her that night. What happened here is the result of something called the misinformation effect a cognitive phenomenon where an eyewitness who is presented with inaccurate information after an event will later incorporate that same inaccurate information into a subsequent recall task. There are many hypotheses as to how this happens with human memory, but defense attorney Philip Mosley says it was likely due to something called unconscious transference in the case of Ronald Cotton. Mosley actually summoned Dr. Reed Hunt from the University of North Carolina to testify for the defense as he's an expert on human memory and could have potentially poked holes in Jennifer's eyewitness account. But Dr. Hunt was not permitted to testify and so the jury was not privy to the potential problems associated with memory recall. According to Mosley, he says that a person who's undergone unconscious transference will witness an event like a sexual assault, and then witness another event, like a photo lineup, and parts from both of those events in the memory will mush together, and thus it was Ronald Cotton's face Jennifer saw when recalling her attack in court. In probably the most wholesome twist of events, Jennifer and Ronald have come together in friendship and activism, using their story as a cautionary tale to prosecutors, police, and professors about the dangers of unreliable eyewitness testimony. Their families are close, they travel together pre-COVID, and are in frequent contact still, using their story to positively influence the justice system and to lessen the probability of wrongful convictions. Thankfully, Ronald Cotton was paid restitution and has been able to successfully rebuild his life since his release. Like I mentioned before, Jennifer married and had children. Her and Ronald actually co-authored a novel together about their story called Picking Cotton, Our Memoir of Injustice and Redemption, which is actually where I found a lot of the information for this case along with interviews that they both did. They have quite literally been an open book about their story and have been able to use this ordeal in the best way to grow together. I think it especially speaks to the character of Ronald Cotton being incarcerated for 11 years and coming out living a life of grace and humility and forgiveness. I can only hope that everybody finds peace like Ronald Cotton has found peace. Bobby Poole, between October 31st of 1983 and April 21st of 1985, had committed a series of rapes against single women living alone in Burlington, North Carolina, just as he did with Thompson and Jane Doe. These attacks all involved breaking into the home late at night after cutting the home phone wire and smashing porch light bulbs, and then stealing belongings and engaging in sexual assault. Bobby Poole actually died in prison of cancer in the year 2000, and Jennifer found this out after she had written him a letter after her first meeting with Ronald. 
She had requested that she meet Poole, just as she did with Ron, to engage in some closure for herself after this decade-long ordeal. Her letter, dated April 18th of 97, available in the archives for their co-authored novel, reads in part, I am writing to you, requesting to see you. For a third of my life, memories, questions, and fear have haunted me. I need to face the person who was responsible for putting them there. I'm not interested in standing judgment of you because that day is coming very quickly for you and it's not for me to do. However, I do want to look you in your eyes so I can put to rest the many questions I've had for so long. I faced you with courage and bravery on that July night. You never asked my permission. Now I ask you to face me, but I'm asking for yours." Bobby Poole never replied to this and he died three years later. Thank you everybody for listening to another episode of Crimopedia. I hope you found this one as interesting as I did. I actually learned about it in a class that I'm taking at my university and I couldn't stop thinking about it, especially the humility of, of Ronald Cotton after being incarcerated for over a decade only to move with complete grace is a level of self-assurance and peace that ugh, I only hope to attain and I hope everyone else does too. If you're interested in learning more about eyewitness testimony, I'm going to link some resources for you in the show notes. Elizabeth Loftus is a spearhead for eyewitness memory and understanding the faults in it that have led to so many people in North America being incarcerated for crimes that they didn't commit. I'll also link resources in the show notes about Canadian exonerations, American exonerations, just so you can get the full picture for yourself of how serious this issue is and that Ronald Cotton's imprisonment for over a decade was actually not unique at all. Thankfully, with modern DNA technology, it takes a lot more to prove someone's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law these days, but that doesn't mean that wrongful convictions don't happen because they do. If you liked this case, thought it was interesting, maybe you want to hear some more, feel free to subscribe to my podcast wherever you're listening now, and make sure you share it with your friends too so they don't miss out. You can find me on Instagram at crimopediapod, or you can email me directly at crimopediapod at hotmail.com. I'd really love to hear from you if you have case suggestions or you really want me to cover something or you just want to talk a little bit about something that I covered on my podcast. Reach out, don't be afraid, and I'll try my best to get back to everyone. Thanks so much for listening again, everybody, and be well. I'll talk to you soon. Mm -hmm.